0: This week on the podcast, a special edition with our critics Dwight Garner, Jennifer Salai, and Paul Sagel, as they talk about what it means to be a best book and how they compiled their respective top 10 lists of 2019. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from the New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. It's the end of the year, and so it's list time. And our three critics, Dwight Garner, Paul Siegel, and Jennifer Salai, have come up with their 10 best books of 2019. They join us now to talk about those books, a little bit about the process and the difficulty of coming up with lists like these. Dwight, Jen, Parl, thanks for being here.
1: Hey, Pamela. Hi, Pamela.
0: How natural is this process? I mean, is this something that you're thinking of from the very beginning of the year when you're choosing your books? Or is this like, oh, my God, it's November and we need to think about it? For me, it's the latter.
2: I mean, I, 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 I feel like I, I was surprised again, even though I shouldn't have been surprised that all of a sudden we were putting together our lists. I think I'm always thinking about
1: it. I think that's just, I'm always even just like weighing one book against the other ones that I've read, just naturally, just before you start flinging around adjectives. I'm always like, is it, is it essential? Is it, is it, you know, arresting? I don't know. Um, Was I arrested more last time? I think, yeah, I think for me, I'm always, I'm always going through it. But then the real sort of thinking and sifting does sneak up on me. And suddenly it's like, I can only, and some, and some years, you know, it's like, I can only choose 10. Some years you're like, how can I stretch right. this to 10? Right, you But know? does that
0: weigh in to your choices? What I'm thinking in that is, does it prevent you from or slow you from reviewing something really dreadful because you think, well, there's no way
1: that this is a contender? No. And I, and I think it's just from the luck of being able to review both genres, I feel mm-hmm. like I get to review enough books. I'm, I'm much more curious to hear from you, Jen, because oh, yeah. you, as the nonfiction <laughs> critic, have a, you know, not narrow as author, but it's, it's a bit more particular your, your lane.
2: Yeah. No, I'll, I'll admit that I internally, maybe sometimes externally complain about <laughs> about having to make the list each year. But I do feel like when it comes to the nonfiction books, yeah, there are just certain books that we should review, that I should review. And so I do it. And then that inevitably takes up a space among the 50-some or 60-some books that we'll review in a year. So I think that that's partly why I don't think about it during the year and then I just let it sneak up on me in November.
0: <laughs> One thing that I notice when I look at your list sometimes I think oh I'm surprised this is on here. I didn't think at the time that Parlor, or Dwight or Jen liked this book as much and I'm curious if over the course of time your view of books might change or as you were saying Parl, some years are slim pickings is it that come the end of the year you think well that wasn't so bad compared with what else was out there? This is looking better now.
3: Things sneak up on you. You know, it's funny. You 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 read a book early in the year and you think, well, maybe this isn't so superb. And then as the year goes on, the book kind of sticks with you and you realize this was far better than I thought. Pieces I love to read in general are when critics go back over their reviews for a year or even a decade and talk about the things maybe they overpraised or underpraised, because as we all know, you know, works of art Change as we look back at them. We all know what it's like buying a new record. You know, you buy an album and then you really dislike it the first ten times you play it, and it's that eleventh time where it clicks. And sometimes mentally that works with a book, even on a second reading.
0: Do you think about? What might make your list from the beginning of the year, Dwight?
3: I do. I remember this April having this stretch where I reviewed three of the best books I've read in a long time, right in a row, just bam, bam, bam. One of them was Susan Choi's Trust Exercises, Trust Exercise, and the other one was The Old Drift by Namwali serpel and. I'm forgetting the other one. I think it was the new Sally Rooney novel, Normal People. And there was something else. And I remember going, holy cow, like this is the best month I've had as a critic in terms of just finding things that blew me away. And on the one hand, you love that. On the other hand, you, you worry, you know, <laughs> i remember losing you. a critical <laughs> faculty. <experience, you> know? <laughs> And and I'm glad that the year simmered down. Or no, I'm not glad, but the year did simmer (laughs) down. It was harder to find great things after that for me anyway. And all three of those
0: books made your list, as well as two books that were on the book review editors list, the top 10 list, Night Boat to Tangier and The Yellow House. Dwight, you also review poetry throughout the year. Do you think to yourself, I've got to have at least one book of poetry? On my list,
3: you know, I don't, but I like to. I mean, I, I read a lot of poetry, and it's hard to find the right book to review of poems. So few slots I feel are open to me to review poetry that I tend to wait until a poet has a collected a book of verse out or a selected book that enables you to look at a whole career rather than just doing an individual book. But this year, this crazy book by this poet Chelsea Minus, and the book is called Baby, I Don't Care, and it's, it's in a way, it's a stunt book. It's sort of you know. Blackly funny poems, very dark poems that take their, that take the subject matter from old Hollywood movies, and it's a very noirish book, and it's unusual. And I went back and read her earlier stuff, and I just realized this is a major talent who's doing a weird thing with this book, and it's a good book. I've been giving it to a lot of people because it's it's a book that's it's easy of access. I like can give it to someone. Doesn't read a lot of poetry, and they can get it and find it quite charming and smart. But she's very deft as a poet, and there are many layers to it. And all sorts of readers, I find, are are charmed and awed by her talent.
0: What's your process like, each of you, when you are coming up with your list, Jen? Well, we each have a, a a page
2: on the Times website where it lists everything that we've written, and so I look at all the books that I reviewed over the past year. And, you know, there are some obvious ones that jump out at me in terms of being included on the list. Like which
0: ones this year did you think? I just know that's going to be Um, on there.
2: I thought the Chernobyl book by Adam Higginbotham, I thought was fantastic. And it was something that, you know, I still haven't seen this HBO series that everybody talks about, but I feel like in terms of the book itself, I learned so much in the way that it was written, in the way that it clarified certain scientific aspects of the meltdown. So this is Midnight in Chernobyl. Midnight in Chernobyl, exactly. And so that was a book that, you know, I, I kept thinking about over the past year. Another book was How to Hide an Empire by Daniel Imroir. Dwight was talking about having A period in the earlier part of the year where just there was one book after another that was just fantastic. And that was another book where, you know, I'd read a lot of books that were about that notion of American empire and critiques of American empire. But this was a book that actually looks at actual territories, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam, you know, all these places that are sort of on the periphery, I think, of the American mainland imagination, I guess, when they mm-hmm. think of what empire means. And so that was another one. You know, the Carolyn Forche book about her time in El Salvador, you know, quite stunning. That's sort of the process that I go through where there are certain books that jump out at me. How about you, Parl? What's your method? It's so scientific. Except okay. no, it's I have I keep all <laughs> the, the books that I,
1: <laughs> I keep all the books that I review. I have a little bookshelf for them and I, I have them in order. So I just look at them and stare up at them hopelessly. But I also do keep like a running list of, of okay. things. Like about mid-year, I'll check in. I'll be like, okay, what's been sort of like spectacular? What am I thinking of? And then, of course, but I think that, that point that you raise and that Dwight did too, talking about that book of poetry, is that... In the last couple of weeks of the, of the month, you sort of think, like well, what is stuck with me? What is nagged at me? Mm-hmm. You know like they're the books that you admire, but you're like, this book had a power because we do live with these books and they change with time and they change with looking at what else is out there. They change also, if I'm honest, about the conversation that's happened around them. Sometimes I do feel like I, I look at a book differently, if I feel like it's been misunderstood, it hasn't been appreciated enough, or looking at the other books this year and seeing other, the other reviews, feeling I don't know defensive on its behalf and saying, how could you miss? This is the one that did something different. Parle, two of your best books Mm. were more than a thousand pages. I know. I like big books. I do. (laughs) I do. I do. do. (laughs) Ducks, Newberry Port
0: by Lucy Ellman and Anniversaries by Uwe Johnson. That one
1: is how long? 1,700 pages. I actually had to go to the doctor after that because I, I developed, like, bad eye strain and they were, they were just twitching. <laughs> so wow. I, because I had to read, like, 500 pages a day. It was insane. It was insane. But the book is so good. I mean, just don't read it like that. Read it, like, 25 pages a day. Like, that's... Both those books are actually great books to have by your bed. Over the course of a year. Absolutely, because they're about slowly narrating a life. And in the case, both these books are about the life of these really, really incredibly scarily intelligent, observant women and and them reading the news and processing the news and thinking about their children, thinking about history as it's happening. Oh, I was so impressed that they could also just hold me in that way, given that, like, you know, time is slow in these books and they're thick with detail and they are immense. Let's talk about anniversaries
0: for a minute, because I don't think we talked about that on the podcast. Ducks Newberry port was, of course, a finalist for the Booker Prize. And it
1: won the Goldsmith Prize.
0: And was famously
1: slightly more than one sentence long, despite the 1,000 <laughs> pages. Sentence. What yeah. is Anniversaries? Anniversaries is, is a book about a woman who leaves Germany. I think, I'm, I'm forgetting when she leaves, but she arrives in, in New York in the 60s with her daughter. And... It's a book about the New York Times. She becomes obsessed with the, with the newspaper and with every day she sort of it's 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 in the form of like a journal. So every day she discusses what's what's in the newspaper and what's happening. And so it's you know El Salvador, it's war, it's protests, and then she also just registers this new place that she's living. So it's about New York, it's about blight, it's about her very funny and precocious daughter, sort of like wandering up and down the city. It's a book about dislocation and exile and trying to find a home particularly in a new place that's also sort of seething and and turbulent. And then there are also these madcap things that happen. So there are kidnapping attempts. It's just, it's, it's both very, very prosaic and has these moments of drama and thriller-esque aspects. But you don't read it for that. You read it for her sensibility. You read it to watch this woman reading the newspaper and being incredibly wry about power. She is so funny, and it's a great tonic right now, I think, as we're all addicted to the news and in the cycle to have somebody like her to be your interlocutor and just to look across history and look at her and just be like, things always so complicated. <laughs>
0: when each of you is putting
1: together your list,
0: do you think about it in its totality? In other words, do you think about the 10 as a whole? And are you including different genres, different types of books, different kinds of authors? Or are you really thinking title by title?
3: I mean, I'm just going by what I love the most. It's hard to get into trying to pick things to fill different categories. You know what I hate, though, about doing this, Pamela?
0: (laughs) Everything. I really hate
3: going back and... No, I hate going back and reading my old reviews from the year because I just I, I, I just end up wincing. Like, why did I put it that way? You know, why why couldn't I have just written it better? You know, there are a few reviews I reread, and so that that's almost good. But most of the time, it's like, ouch. And it's, it's a good lesson for a critic to have to go back and read their stuff for a year.
0: I often find when I go back and read something, I think, who wrote this? Like, I just feel dis- yes. like a disassociation with
1: it. What do you think, Carl? You're laughing. No, I'm agreeing with Dwight. I'm, I kind of am just like, let me just fiddle with that lead one more time. I just want to write to the editor. be like, just let me get back in that file. But no, like Dwight, I don't think about ticking boxes and saying that, oh, I need a history and I need a, a novel and I need... It does come down to what feels like the best and and the most surprising and the freshest.
0: Would we completely torture you if we said you have to pick one book on this list that's your super very best? That would be my torture. <laughs> I'll just say that right now. Parla's just making a
1: facial expression. I can't believe you went there. I am know. Guess. Well, can we, we say like? I mean, I could do like one book that you. Oh, I could not. I couldn't. I couldn't. I'm trying. I it was a rhetorical question. I, I wasn't it. trying to know, make you want, do I it. I want to meet your challenge, <laughs> Dwight. Do
0: you meet the challenge? Oh, I could totally do it. I'm not. Oh, no. to do Wow. It. I mean, you know,
2: nice.
3: Perverse. <laughs> listeners want to send me like you know I don't know a country ham or something. Maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll whisper it into their email. But um
0: no. There are a few books on each of your lists that I'd love to just talk a little bit about individually and one of them is on yours Dwight. Could you talk about the book Solitary Unbroken by Four Decades in Solitary Confinement My Story of Transition and Hope by Albert Woodfox and Leslie George?
3: Yeah, what what an amazing book! I mean, I just just it's just riveting. I mean, Albert Woodfox was sent to Angola, you know, the famous prison farm in Louisiana. I mean, he was quite young and spent forty years essentially in solitary. And you know, he can write. He just has a natural voice, and I am sure that his his ghostwriter, his co-writer, was helpful. But it's not the kind of voice you can fake. I mean, a ghostwriter did not write this book and had these perceptions. He's an intense human being. Woodfox is not at all shy about talking about what a troubled kid he was. I mean, he was not a good kid when he was young. He really enjoyed is the same I review what life wasn't gonna give him, he was gonna take and he hurt a lot of people. But he did not commit the kind of crimes that would sentence someone to forty years in Angola. And one of the joys of reading this book is watching him teach himself about life and about literature and about the law, and he becomes a better person. And he ends up helping umpteen people with their own cases. And it's sort of watching a life tra- transform. You know, in this case, he's lucky he he wasn't killed m- many times over. And he's just an extraordinary human being. And I'm glad to see him on tour now for this book, and I would love to catch up with him somewhere.
0: It's interesting. We had a similar conversation about what did he write versus the co-author because the editor who handled that book here similarly felt like this is him. This is him. It's not, the, it's not about the co-writer. And there's this question of, does an as-told-to book or a ghost-written book merit a spot on a 10 best list? And But she's also felt that, uh, as you say, that the book has to be mostly him. That takes nothing away
3: from from the from the other writer, who clearly is very talented. But there's just a level of perception about what it's like to be in prison and the details, the exact details, that he clearly has an incredible memory because just the details are always there. And in a way, that's what makes a great memoir come to life, what a great anything come to life. And he's just got them over and over again.
0: Jen, there's a few books that I wanted to ask you to about that are on your list. One you reviewed quite recently, Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe, Trotter by Carrie Greenidge. This is a biography of Trotter. It's the first one, I think, in
2: I want to say 40 or 50 years. You know, he's somebody who would show up in the biography of other people. I think I mentioned in my review, he would show up in the the biographies about Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, he would also show up in the biographies of Woodrow Wilson. He was a newspaper editor of this uh, Boston-based black newspaper called The Guardian. During the time of Wilson's presidency, when Wilson actually actively segregated the federal civil service, Trotter led a delegation of other African-Americans to come and talk to Wilson and to try to convince him to reverse his policies which wilson eventually didn't do and so what this book does is it sets up this interesting conversation and story about the role of radicalism at a time when booker t washington was considered a representative for african americans in the united states and Washington was very conservative. Trotter was somebody who was very radical. I mean, he even at some point thought that Du Bois was too much of a centrist. Mm -hmm. And what Dwight says about detail, there's a lot of detail in this book. And it's just, you know, a really interesting look at a life that I think people, especially right now, would want to know more about.
0: When you're coming up with these lists, do you think sometimes, just this book really didn't get the attention that it deserved. And I want to make sure that this book gets the kind of notice and acclaim and readership that it ought to.
2: I don't know if that's an overriding concern. I do feel like there are sometimes there are books where they are something that I would want to put on the list. And then it is nice to think about the fact that, oh, this is a book that you know maybe didn't get the kind of attention that I think it deserved at the time, and then it does. So that's sort of a nice thing, but I don't know if that's like an overriding concern. I I don't know about you, Paul. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I'm very similar, very similar, but I think also, I don't think people just like books. I think when you like books, you become partisans for that book. And I think especially if you've given something like a favorable review and you liked it, you admired it, and you kind of see it in the world and you see it getting lost. You know, it does sort of, at least for me, at, when I'm making this list, it brings it back to sort of say, like, let's give one more plug to this incredibly deserving, perhaps, Overlook book. But yeah, but that's not the, it's not the driving impulse.
0: Jen, one of the books that I was really interested to see on your list, because it is what we're calling now a Trump book, Uh Um, (laughs) uh, and there have been so many of them, and not all of them have been great, but one is on your list. And I remember when you reviewed this book, American Carnage by Tim Alberta, your review was so persuasive. And I thought, personally... I'm not inclined to read that many more of these books, but you had a real strong argument for this book. Can you tell us why? It's a Trump book that's not a Trump book,
2: which is, I think, something I've said several times. And, you know, what he does is he really provides this history, I guess, to what is going on now, but a history that's looking at what's going on within the Republican establishment, which I feel like if you look at everything that's happening now with the... impeachment process and impeachment hearings, it really is a question of what has happened to the Republican Party. Because, I mean, Trump, Trump is Trump. He's, He's always been Trump. I mean, I think that that's sort of the interesting question where somebody who previously was considered practically persona non grata among Republicans has now been actively embraced by them. I mean, somebody like Lindsey Graham, who was, you know, an ally of John McCain, was extremely critical of Trump before he was a standard bearer of the Republican Party. So
0: what is the answer? I mean, is it <laughs> practical opportunism? Is it pandering to the voters? Is it a question of money or is this a genuine... Jen,
1: just say to say yes. <laughs> to <Just> say yes. <laughs> Explain...
2: Well, so, you know, Alberta's book it covers about a decade or a decade and a half of American history in it. And you know, he he comes to the conclusion that opportunism is a big part of it. I mean, one of the things he says is that if you look at what was going on with the Republicans before, there was an attempt, at least among a certain subset of establishment Republicans, to really widen their outreach, that they didn't want to necessarily just be the party of older white Americans. Because of demographic change, if the democracy is functioning properly and there's enough demographic change, you can't necessarily be only the party that's representing the interests of a shrinking demographic. And so what Alberta found when he was talking to people was that, you know, there was another faction of the party that essentially doubled down. And it wasn't just, you know, Trump really sort of was the person who sees the opportunity in the most flagrant way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you look at the Tea Party as a reaction in part to Obama's presidency like a backlash if you look at the freedom caucus i mean this you know this is a group of republicans that felt an existential threat from the fact that to function properly in democracy that they would have to reach out to people that they didn't necessarily want to reach out to so i think he does see it as a way that they realized oh wait a second this person, Trump, is in touch with our base in a way that a lot of establishment Republicans who were busy talking about things that would benefit maybe the more economically elite members of the party that they weren't in touch with what a core group of the base actually wanted which
0: was a version of white identity
2: politics which is part of the story in this book
0: it's interesting because you're talking about this book very much in terms of the argument and the analysis that he does but it's mostly reporting um, i right. should say i <laughs> right.
2: should say he, he he's not you know he's not an opinion writer he's a reporter he talks to a lot of the people in the party and he does provide a view that's not just, you know, I'm really distilling probably like 600 pages mm-hmm. into a through line that I detected, but, you know, he is talking about the different factions because he, and I think the subtitle, there's the word Civil War is somewhere in the tit- subtitle about this. on civ- the
0: front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump.
2: Right. So he's looking at the way in which the party itself is is coming apart and so as sort of a Alaska's attempt to survive. They're sort of all lining up behind the one figure that they know commands, even if it's a minority vote in the American population, it's it's sort of a base core vote of support.
0: Alberta is comes from the right himself. He yes. was a correspondent for well, National yeah. Review before Politico and got people to really talk. Yes, he did. Well, now is a moment for all three of you. If there is a book that you particularly want to talk about, give it one more chance at getting some notice. What book, Dwight, on your list would you want to mention?
3: Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> because, you know, most of the books on my list, you know, I've gotten a fair amount of attention elsewhere. Real Marcus is a favorite critic of mine. and He does this thing called The Real Life Rock Top Ten, which is a column Commenting on Cultural Matters, which he's done for 25 years now. It's moved around from publication to publication, from art form to The Village Voice. And he wrote this week about Nell Zink's novel, Doxology. And he found the book appalling. And that interests me because there's nothing more interesting than someone who radically disagrees with you about something. And Zink's novel, Doxology, about it's very complicated. It's about two generations of a family, sort of 80s hipsters in Brooklyn. They try to start a band. Their best friend dies of a drug overdose. And the book becomes about their daughter who goes on to work in politics. But I find Zink's very, very odd, very strange, very cerebral and, and a bit what's the word I'm looking for? Almost sour voice, I find very appealing. And I I found that her book, as I wrote in my review, just sort of threw dart after dart right into my mind. I just was very impressed by the book. It falls apart a bit in the second half. And there are some things that Zink doesn't do well. But what she does well, she does so well that in many respects, that's my book of the year.
1: Parle? I think for me, it would be Women Talking by Miriam Taves, which is a book about a Mennonite colony in South America and the women wake up in the mornings and they've got frayed rope on their hands and they're sore and they're bleeding. And it turns out that men from the community have been sneaking in through the windows and sedating the entire household with, I think, cow tranquilizer and and raping these women. It's based on a real story and Taves herself grew up in a Mennonite colony in Canada. And it's a book that's so powerful, so original, so strange. I think the people that read it really loved it but it kind of went missing this year it kind of didn't really dig its dig its hands into the conversation in a way which surprised me given how much the conversation this year was about abuse and and trauma and all of this stuff and i i still don't understand why that is because it's also in terms of its form it's it's a book almost entirely in dialogue so this the story is a bunch of these women from the community go up into a hayloft while the men are away they have two days to decide what to do do they stay and fight do they flee do they stay and forgive? And it's really just a group of women in the course of this conversation talking about how do you make a just society? What does rehabilitation mean? What does punishment mean? What does forgiveness really mean? And getting down to the basic essence of this. They're all uneducated women. They cannot read. They cannot look at a map. They've had no training in all of this. But the conversation that leads them to these places that is just, for me, it felt really, really thrilling and moving. And it just really shook up some of my own premises. How about you, Jen? This is exactly the kind of question that I, I, I'm I'm
2: loath to answer. But I will say there was a book that I reviewed, actually, another one that I reviewed fairly recently by Tant Mintyu called The Hidden History of Burma, which looks at what's been happening, especially in the last decade. Very timely right now. Well, this is exactly it. I mean, I was just say, seeing in the newspaper yesterday that Aung San Suu Kyi has been essentially defending the general's in Burma or Myanmar, I guess, depending on how you want to call it. And, you know, they've been accused of genocide by the U.N. And Gambia has brought a lawsuit against Burma in the International Criminal Court. And so I think the fact that this woman who was seen as, I think, a hero for democracy, I mean, she was really partly and, and what Taunt Min Yu gets at is, you know, a lot of it was the fact that she was very charismatic At the time, it seemed like a simplistic morality tale of this military hunter against this democratic hero. And what has happened since is that she herself has sided with the military that once held her in house arrest. And so... What he looks at is he looks at the context of Burmese history and he conveys this. I mean, it's a very complicated history involving colonialism, racism, ethnic conflict, all of this, as well as sort of the advent of a new kind of capitalism. And he weaves this together in order to try to create a better understanding for people about what's going on, which I think is really invaluable right now and not
1: easy to do. And he he does it. Can I just put the question to you? Is there a book that you felt was overlooked that you wished? you could plug and bring readers to? Is it fair to pose that to the editor?
0: It, it's totally fair, but I, I, my answer is that having been involved in the 10 best mm. books, this year when we talked about it earlier on the podcast and I asked everyone to talk about a favorite that didn't make the list, I felt very lucky because my personal favorites did make the list. Two, I felt really strongly about, and, and and one of them kind of evangelized and, and applied late pressure, as we will say, <laughs> to get everyone to agree. So I ended up feeling quite satisfied with our list, as I do with all of yours. So Jen, Dwight, Parl, thank you so much for being here.
3: Thanks, Pamela. Thank you, Pamela.
0: I want to take a moment to tell you about a new series of events we've created called Book Review Live. At each event, we'll use books as a jumping off point into larger discussions that help us better understand our world, kind of like we do here on the podcast. The first one is happening the evening of January 14th at the Times Center in New York City. We'll be welcoming Cheryl Wudun and my colleague Nick Kristoff to talk about their new book, Tightrope Americans Reaching for Hope. They'll be in conversation with our critic, Jennifer Salai. The book is a story about the disintegration of America's working class, as seen through the eyes of Nick and Cheryl's friends and neighbors. To dig deeper into the themes of Tightrope, we'll also hear from my colleague Andrew Ross Sorkin, watch clips from a new documentary based on the book, and enjoy readings from a surprise guest. You can buy tickets at nytimes.com slash bookreviewlive. Hope to see you there. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Greg Coles, Andrew Lavallee, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Pamela. All right, let's start with you, Greg. What are you reading?
4: I'm reading a biography of Thelonious Monk. It's by Robin D.G. Kelly. It came out almost a decade ago, and I've, I've been meaning to get to it. But lately, I've been listening to a lot more jazz piano. I, I really love jazz, and I love jazz piano, and I listen to it on and off. But I've, I've been in a real streak lately of listening to it. And so finally, it, it drove me to this biography that's been sitting on my shelf. And I have to say, as I was Walking down here to the podcast room, our former colleague Francis Mateo, who works on the sports desk now, saw me carrying it, and he said, Greg, I love that book. I'm about 80 pages in, and I'm loving it too. Kelly is a historian and an academic, and he's written previous books more scholarly about race issues in America. And he brings that perspective to this biography of Monk, so it opens with slavery. Monk's grandmother on his mother's side was born just after the Emancipation Proclamation. As he says, she was conceived in slavery, born in freedom. And so it, it pulls a history of American race relations through the biography. It, and it's it's a very granular academic type biography, a little overwhelming at times, but totally great at situating everything in the context. Thelonious Monk is born in 1917. He is a piano prodigy from his early days he's got an amazing ear an amazing sense of harmony he's classically trained but kind of branches off into the the budding r&b scene playing with orchestras playing with a, a preacher as part of the house band before he essentially invents bebop in the war years and just after and so this book fits him into the context of he was part of the Harlem, the New York jazz scene, friends with Bud Powell, and really a mentor to a lot of people. It does all that (laughs) in a way that... You know, he'll give you three pages on blacks in World War II and their resistance to the draft and also how the draft boards rejected black applicants at far greater numbers than white applicants. So you read three pages that don't have Monk in them at all, and then he pulls it back and and tells you how that all relates. So I'm learning a lot about the music, and and more than that, I'm learning a lot more about the scene. It's very impressively done.
0: (laughs) I have to say the first thing that popped into my head when you started speaking and said up front you really like jazz was that line in The Talented Mr. Ripley, which I just rewatched with one of my children last weekend, an older child, just in case anyone's concerned. (laughs) And where he says, you know, towards the end, Dickie Greenleaf says to Tom Ripley, do you really like jazz?
4: (laughs) I really like jazz. All
0: right. I'll accept your answer. What are you reading, Andrew?
5: I am reading The Factory by Hiroko Oyamada. I had picked up this book recently, and then I was even more intrigued after reading Parl's review. It is recently translated from Japanese, and I just started, so I can't tell you how it ends, but it is about this mysterious factory in Japan and follows three workers who are newly hired there. One of them, her job is basically just to feed documents into a paper shredder all day, every day. Another person is a proofreader. Another person is studying moss. So it kind of gets into some of these questions that I think a lot of us have every now and then about our work. Like, what are we doing here? Is this what I'm doing with my life?
0: But you never have that. I never have
5: that question. I never question (laughs) it. Um, But it kind of goes in a more Kafka-esque direction. You know, their sense of reality starts to slip, animals start popping up, and, you know, hilarity ensues.
6: (laughs) John, what are you reading? I'm reading someone who who cited Kafka as an influence. That's a good transition. I'm reading someone who will have something a bit more about next week in print. I can't say more about it. But – I'm reading a novel by a Croatian writer named Dasa Derndic. That's the closest I can get to properly pronouncing her name. I I know how it's pronounced. My mouth just can't do it. But her last name is D-R-N-D-I-C. And she died in 2018. She was in her 70s. And I'm reading a book called Belladonna. I think that three or four of her books have been translated into English. She wrote about a dozen novels and I think many more than that plays. In the Guardian obituary of her in 2018, it said that a main theme of her work was the overlooked or deliberately omitted complicity of her native Croatia in the Holocaust. This isn't happy reading. It's funny because last year around holiday time, I was reading the early novels of Cormac McCarthy for some reason. <laughs> and so I have this sort of weird <laughs> imp of the perverse in me around holiday season to <laughs> it's read just your holiday like, vibe. the darkest stuff I can find. There are two people I think that she gets compared to Sabald a lot because she has – some photos in here. It's very much about like using historical documents to try to understand the past and and why we behave the way we do and things that happen. But unlike Sabald, who sort of his novels can feel like they're you know narrated by this historical cloud of just knowing this there is a central character here this man named Andreas Bon or Ban who is a 65 year old psychologist no longer practicing who's sick and looking back on his past and so mixed in with these more from 30,000 feet historical ruminations you get his crusty and probably eventually i'm only halfway through Maybe he has some complicity I don't know about yet. There's probably darkness in his past that I haven't learned about yet. And so his voice also drives the book. It's this nice counterpoint to the historical stuff. But she's a very singular writer. She's more, I think, knotted and darker than Sabald. She reminds me a little bit of Thomas Bernhard in that sense. Like you have to really plunge into kind of the darker side of the human experience. But she's a very elegant writer, and there's definitely room for dark humor and beautiful ruminations on human existence and, and the past and memory and what it means to kind of try to heal and, and move on with your life. And she just seems like someone who maybe is underknown here, but I think that's slowly changing, which is nice. John is changing it. i'm doing my best and someone else here is going to do her best next week and others have chimed in and it's a shame that she she died a couple of years ago because i do think that her reputation is increasing here and that she definitely seems like the kind of writer who would have been on the nobel shortlist a lot because her work is so politically engaged and has a lot of depth to it so this is not for everybody but if you do like both sebald and bernard and kafka and darker european stuff then i would definitely suggest checking her out speaking
4: of dark and politically engaged pamela (laughs) What are you reading?
6: I have
0: finally finished John Farrell's biography of Richard Nixon. So this will be our last Nixon episode here on the Book Review Podcast, at least until perhaps one of you picks this up.
4: It's good timing.
0: It is good timing. And, you know, there are, I think, two questions underlying this book, at least for me. One of them is the kind of eternal question, which is, how did Richard Nixon get that way? You know, or was he always that way? And then the other is more of the moment, which is, you know, what are the parallels with impeachment? We're recording this on Thursday, December 19th. It is the morning after President Trump has been impeached by the House of Representatives. So that feels like a timely question. But I'll address the first one. When I was reading this, started reading this, I was down in Miami and I was on a panel with Thomas Mallon, who'd written a novel about Nixon. And I mentioned that I hadn't known about the deaths of two of his brothers when he was a child from tuberculosis. And he said, I think that that's what defines Richard Nixon. That explains him. I don't know if it does, but one thing that Farrell does in this biography is really he evolves from a character who's a naturally sympathetic person. He was born into poverty. He went to school with no shoes on. Two of his three brothers died. He had parents who were not easy parents, and he was really smart but didn't have opportunities. He could have gone to Harvard or Yale. He had to go to a tiny local community college, and I think that, you know, what happened it's almost like a weird variation on the picture of Dorian Gray. It's like if you take the like most caricatured political cartoon image of Nixon, it's like he became that. <laughs> you know, he fulfilled the worst expectations that everyone else had of him. It's uh, you could see that there was like a there were points at which he could have gone down either path. You know, early on, Martin Luther King Jr. was a huge admirer of his, said, I'm convinced that there isn't a racist bone in Richard Nixon's body. And you could see that that he could have gone kind of in many different directions. And he basically went on the worst possible <laughs> path according to everyone's worst expectations. It's almost like there was a contrarian impulse in him owing, I think, probably in part to his insecurity and other factors, and I'm not a psychologist, but that he was goaded by people's criticisms, almost into a kind of like, well, I'll show you. You think that's bad. You know, <laughs> He, he um, did have a
6: big chip on his shoulder from his sort of feeling like he had to strive in a way that other people didn't. And other things came easily to other people of more privilege.
0: Oh, uh, and... yeah. Now, yeah, he adored Jack Kennedy for that reason. <laughs> I mean, they actually were, you know, good friends at first until the 1960 campaign. And then the other question is about impeachment. There are just a bunch of really intriguing little parallels in here, both in terms of the times and the specifics. So talking about a period of real political polarization. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was, of course, an early advisor to Nixon in the presidency, says at one point, do not doubt that there is a struggle going on in this country of the kind the Germans used to call a kulturkampf, the adversary culture which dominates almost all channels of information, transfer and opinion has never been stronger. And as best as I can tell, it has come near to silencing the representatives of traditional America. Later on, They talk about the media setting up the worst possible interpretation of Nixon and him delivering on that. The three major television networks planned gavel-to-gavel coverage of the Watergate committee hearings and PBS followed up with taped primetime shows at night. Nixon baiting journalists, Dan Rather was the most prominent example, made names for themselves. Watergate had become, as writer David Halberstam put it, the great national detective thriller. Hmm. Nixon's aides were staggered. If I had to depend for my information on The Washington Post, The New York Times, and CBS, I'd hate the son of a bitch too, speechwriter Ray Price told a friend. And then... A little later. And some of this is kind of stunning. And I, I I don't know if any of you saw the play Frost Nixon. Or the movie. Or the movie. Our producer, Pedro, is nodding his head. He saw it, even if you guys didn't. But I urge you to see it. Anyway, he famously gave these very long interviews to the British broadcaster, David Frost, in which he was very defensive for a long period of time, but eventually started, started to talk. He did it for the money. He really was out of money by the end of Watergate with legal fees and everything else. And there's a quote from Nixon. When the president does it, that means that it is not illegal, Nixon declared. <laughs> Frost was near dumbstruck. So, you know, it's interesting to read it at this moment. There are definitely some intriguing parallels, and I could offer many others. But it's, I think, useful, and I think it's why there have been so many stories in the news lately that have been drawing the parallels.
6: And it seems like the book is very readable because you were, it's a big book, and you've been making really good progress, I can tell from where you were just flipping to. It seemed like I'm done. You're done, done. Yeah. In case you're <laughs> questioning my yeah. No, so I, I mean, my big question about that has been, you know, how I, I'm very interested in reading more about Nixon, but I, I just didn't know how – it's obviously well written and sort of propulsive.
0: It and. totally moves. Listeners cannot see this, but <laughs> those in the studio will witness. I'm handing my book to John. John you can read my book. <laughs> it, you will, John. You have confessed on this very podcast that you are a fast reader. I suspect you would
6: read it in a week. I'll talk about it next week. Uh, <laughs> yes, fall. to be
0: continued. All right, let's run down the books. John, you read?
6: I read *Belladonna* by Dasa Derndich. I read The
4: Factory by Hiroko Oyamata. I'm reading Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original by Robin D.G. Kelly.
0: And I read John Farrell's Richard Nixon, The Life. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.